Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Sensei Joshin Burns for the Real Change podcast series. Sensei Joshin is a Zen priest and teacher in the White Plum lineage of Maizumi Roshi and Bernie Glassman Roshi, and is a Dharma successor of Roshi John Halifax. In 2017, he founded Breadloaf Mountain Zen Community in Vermont. Joshin envisioned that Breadloaf Mountain Zen Community would be a hub of socially engaged Zen practice grounded in the Zen peacemaker tradition and the practices of not knowing, bearing witness, and healing action. Joshin maintains a core practice of bearing witness to homelessness, 
by offering street retreats in cities around the country. Professionally, Joshin has spent much of his career working for social change nonprofits in the areas of AIDS and HIV prevention, child welfare, and community-based philanthropy. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Joshin. Thanks, Sharon. I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm really happy to be here with you. I miss actually seeing you and yeah. being in uh, Santa Fe with you and hanging right. out. Right. Me too. Now we're both recording remotely. I'm in Barry, Massachusetts still. <laughs> um, and you are in Vermont. So we're recording yeah. from our respective quarantine homes. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy time, isn't it? It's, it's just a... It's a I feel pretty like crazy I'm, time. Yeah. And all my relationships now, most of them, are online. And it's so interesting. Imagine if we didn't have It's very interesting. (laughs) Thank goodness we have some technology. I mean, it would be really amazing. I was saying before we started recording that, I went to downtown Barry the other day on Monday. And it was the first time I've left this property since March 14th when I got here. And it was so much like leaving a a long-term intensive retreat. I was looking out the car window, someone was driving me in. I was looking out the car window and thinking, there's the gas station. <laughs> Ooh, there's the pizza yeah. place. There's the yeah. other pizza place. Yeah, the world looks new. <laughs> yeah. The world looks very new. Um, so one of the things that happened for me is that my book was supposed to come out June 2nd and it was postponed to September 1st. So today's recording is part of a larger series of conversations on the Meta Hour centered around the themes in my book, This Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And I've long held the question for myself, what can be the role of mindfulness and loving kindness practices in changing the world? And this book is the culmination of that question. I look to veteran activists and social change agents in a variety of fields, including yourself, to explore how meditation practice can serve as the foundation for an engaged life. I should say that not everyone in the book is a meditator in the formal sense, but everybody is drawing from some kind of inner resource, inner strength, and and has a kind of clarity around things like the force of love, which is, is so powerful to consider in terms of how those qualities and how an actual practice can serve as the foundation for an engaged life. And I think that's true whether the change we seek to make in the world is through activism or creativity or family or systems change or, or whatever. So I have always found your work as an activist deeply inspiring, and I'm I'm so delighted to be able to share it. So I'm hoping you can start by telling us some of the background of your path and how you came into practice and how you came to activism. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, with a working class poor family. Uh, Italian and Irish. The Italians overpowered the Irish. There was lots of emotion <laughs> and lots of food and lots of love and all those things. But but the family, my family, there was a lot of hardship. My my father 
was a very serious alcoholic, and um, that threw our family into poverty. And uh, my mother died pretty young at 46 years old. And after she died, my father's alcoholism got worse, and he really um, suffered a lot and eventually became homeless uh, through the 1980s and 90s. And um, I'll loop back to that, but I think another thread maybe in my own personal story is, uh, you know, I grew up maybe like a lot of people do, I don't know, but I, I grew up feeling pretty alone out there as a kid. Um, and religion often gave me a kind of refuge. I was raised Catholic and I was very inspired by religion as a young child. And part of, I think, my sense of alienation came from realizing that I was gay as a young child and that made me feel really alienated. You know, the images of gay people that we had back then were not good and uh, the church seemed like a really viable and healthy alternative to what otherwise seemed to me would have been a life of ridicule and bias and all those things. So the church felt safe for me in a way and in a way, it was a hiding place, too, you know, a place I didn't really have to face up to some of what was going on inside me. But it was also a real place for growth and development and, and safety. So when I was about 19 years old, I uh, wanted to explore becoming a priest. And I first went to a Benedictine monastery for two years and studied philosophy and there I learned the basics of contemplative practice. And then after two years there, I joined a religious order called the Dominicans. And they were a progressive social justice group, really. And I took vows with them and studied theology there. And I worked in a number of different settings in jails. I worked with uh, uh, sex offenders who were awaiting trial. Um, I worked in homelessness. I worked with immigrant populations. So I really cut my teeth in a lot of social justice work during that time. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm also really grateful for the Dominicans because I met my partner there in 1982 and we're still together after all these years. And so um, I left uh, religious life when I was about 25 or 26 and this was the mid-1980s, and the AIDS epidemic was just out of control. And as a young gay man, of course, it was, it was terrifying and um, really tough. And I was in graduate school in New York City and started to do activism there uh, with ACT UP New York and some other groups. And so I kind of got introduced to social activism, really, in the AIDS epidemic. And um, and then I eventually started to work professionally in, in the in the AIDS epidemic and did that for about, I don't know, 14 or 15 years. During that time, my partner and I also adopted three children from the foster care system. These kids had lots of trauma, lots of um, so mental health and cognitive disabilities and, you know, things like that that are not uncommon for kids who have been through really tough early lives. And so by the late, I don't know, mid-90s, late 90s, you know, we had these three really challenging children who we loved dearly, of course, but demanded a lot. I was working in the AIDS epidemic full-time up at that point in San Francisco, 
pretty tough place. And I burned out. I totally burned out by the time I was 40. I was depleted and really crispy. And um, I doubted the value of the work. Um, you know, I just became cynical. I was pretty angry. And um, yeah, I was just kind of an unhappy fellow. And so I went to therapy at that point and uh, met a therapist. And in the first session with the therapist, um, I was telling him my story and I was saying really burned out. And I kind of told him I was in religious life earlier in life. And he said, you know, I think you threw out the baby with the bathwater when you left religious life. You, 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 you let go of your inner life. And when he said that, it went right into me. I thought, I did. I let go of my inner life. And it was that moment that was kind of just a little turning in my life where I thought, go inward, you know, and I couldn't really go back to mm -hmm. Catholicism. I felt I had kind of burned that bridge philosophically in my mind. And through first yoga and some Hindu practices, I found my way slowly to Buddhism and then became acquainted with the work of Bernie Glassman, uh, Roshi and the Zen peacemakers. And for me, that clicked a lot of things into focus. And I began to establish um, a regular meditation practice, but in the context of living a fully engaged life in the world. And that helped me restore something. And so then with that, I went to Santa Fe and lived at Upaya Zen Center and studied with Roshi Joan, who you and I both know and admire greatly, and did a lot of the traditional Zen training, um, but also continued to work in social change during that time. So that's kind of how I got to Buddhism, and it's kind of a circuitous path, maybe. I don't know. No, it's great. I have some longing to know that therapist. Yeah. I'm like, wow. He was great. He's a great therapist. Yeah. Because no, I, you know, um, well, our backgrounds are very similar. My mother died when I was very young, when I was nine, and my father was not around at that point, but he also had a very serious alcohol problem and mental illness and um i remember the moment when i was i guess 17 years old and did an asian philosophy course in college and there was something about the buddha saying that life contains suffering that actually excited me. I didn't find it depressing at all. It was like the first time in my life I didn't feel so alone. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I felt like I belonged because he was saying, this is a part of life. It's not just you. It's mm. not so weird. You know, it's not like life is grim and there will only be pain, but that this is a part of things. And And it was that moment that I felt for the first time ever this kind of breathtaking sense of of being included. And I heard in that class, you know, there's some methods, there's some techniques that people use that they call meditation. And if you use them, you could be a lot happier. And, and that was it, you know. And yeah. Yeah. I look back at that moment, which is like crazy, you know, because I think, mm -hmm. why didn't I think – I think I'll stay and go to graduate school or something, you know, <laughs> and study stuff. It was like I went to India. It was, it was yeah. crazy.
yeah, uh, yeah. but there it was. Yeah. I think the other part for me was um, my mother's death. I was 21 when she died and she was 46 and there were still young children at home and she died rather suddenly at home of a heart attack. And I did CPR on her and she died mm -hmm. uh, as I was working on her. And so that really threw me for a loop. You know, I was in very deep grief and shock for a few years when I was in religious life, actually. And it was really a profound experience, but, and I, and it was confusing experience, but eventually it also worked on me in a way, like in some ways, like you were saying about seeing suffering as part of life, I began to see death as that too. And I thought, oh, this is part of the way it goes, you know, like this is part of it. And boy, if I can kind of be in the presence of that um, awareness, it somehow sharpens me a bit. And, and during the AIDS epidemic, of course, we were surrounded by a lot of death. And I would say that that was just another theme of my spiritual development, you know, kind of like St. Benedict says, you know, keep death always before you. Or in Zen, we say, you know, life and death is of supreme importance. You know, don't forget. And that shaped a lot of my spirituality, I think, that experience. I have um, like whole sections in the book about uh, turning helplessness into action and helplessness being at the root of a lot of anger, you know, so um, transforming some of that anger, the energy of the anger into action. And I use the ACT UP uh, movement as really the prime example, you know, like a completely grief-stricken community. Mm -hmm. uh, not only did people take care of one another uh, in the most selfless ways, but there was a movement, you know, like yeah. let's let's get stuff changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny, but so anger has been a bit of a theme for me too. You might also imagine, given the story I told about my my father, that. I was really angry with him. I mean, at a very deep and personal level, it wasn't just angry at the system, you know, um, which in some ways it's easy to be angry with something kind of impersonal, like all those, you know, the, the horrible system there that, that harms us or something. But the harder anger for me was the anger I felt toward my father for decades, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt um, abandoned uh, by him after our mother died. And I wrote him off, you know, just as a human being, I, I wrote him off. And I couldn't bring thoughts of him to mind without feeling a lot of rage and even disgust at times. And it was embarrassing for me. I mm -hmm. felt embarrassed by feeling those things, you know. And even mm -hmm. after I became a pretty regular practitioner of Buddhism, I noticed I had this in me and they were very strong emotions. And I felt oddly ashamed of them. You know, I couldn't like integrate them in. And, you know, this is a kind of a strange bodhisattva story in a way is when he was dying, he reached out to me. And I think we talked about this for the book maybe. And uh, he, he reached out to me 
And, you know, my, my gut, my, like I really wanted to abandon him in my body. I wanted to abandon him. You know, I wanted to say too bad. You had your chance, you know, it's over. You missed it. Um, you know, it, it was, I was so surprised by the strength of those feelings and it was eating me up. And I think, you know, Zazen during that period of meditation, I found myself just pretty disturbed by a lot of it. And, um, and at the same time, oddly enough, this is like the strange paradox. I was already doing some homelessness work, you know, and I was noticing like, oh, I had all this compassion for these more anonymous homeless people out there. And I could feel something for them and could look upon their suffering in this way, like I could help, you know, it was, it was odd. But when I looked at my own father and his own experience of homelessness, I, I couldn't muster the same thing. So that really gave me a signal, like something was amiss. And I kind of knew I had to face it. Um, you know, I don't know if that's just getting older and maturity or something about practice, you know, that allowed me to think and uh, have the courage in some ways to say, I need to go see him and I need to address this. And um, yeah, and so I, I did that. And um, and in that experience of being with him face to face, and you know, this is Bernie Glassman's language, like bearing witness to his life, you know, like dropping some of my own stuff, like practicing the discipline through technique, really, of kind of putting some things down, noticing that my anger is there, but I don't have to feed it or activate it so much. I could open to him in a way. And in that process, he became a human being again to me. And I think I kind of became a little more human too in, in that process. Mm -hmm. And, and there was this other aspect as time went on, I realized part of it too, was I, I began to honor my own anger, you know, like my anger toward him, I was hurt, you know, and that anger is in some way that it's a valid and even a wholesome response when we're hurt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I, I could learn how to bow to it in a way. And that began a process of think, healing and transformation for me. Well, it's like there's the Dharma right there. And it's so tricky, you know, to honor the feeling we're having. Mm. Um, not to in any way try to discard it or feel like I shouldn't, you know, I've been practicing all these years. I shouldn't have this, you know, but uh, nonetheless, to have the kind of enough space to decide, do I want this to govern my actions? Yeah. You know, do I want this to govern my choices? Like, what if right. I refused to go see him and he died? Right. You know, what if? Um, you know, and so there's something, it's, it's so delicate not to disown what we're feeling or, or be ashamed of it and and to see the wisdom as you did in it, you know, or, or the energy within it. That yeah. can be very, very important. And at the same time, to have that sense of empowerment. Like, you know, is, is this what I want to define my life or not? And I think the basis of it is self-compassion in a lot of ways, you know, mm -hmm. because if we're, if we're feeling that cut off or we feel uh, that much resentment, 
like I'm told by my friends in AA that um, the single most common feeling that leads people to go back into drinking is resentment, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, it's damaging to, to be enveloped in and overcome by those feelings. And it's not because they're bad, you know, it's, it's that they're so painful and yeah. um, so distancing in some way. And so I think it's really out of, out of compassion for oneself that one looks for a way of dealing with them, which of course becomes compassion for others. Yeah. 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 And part of it was also just seeing the toxicity of it in my, in me, you know, I thought, wow, I'm like bathing my brain over and over and over again in this, in this kind of toxin. And there's, yeah, as you're saying, there was kind of an element of choice in there, you know, like, is that really how I want to be? And just having the space to ask myself that question allowed for uh, a new response to it. And that's interesting. Space allows action to happen, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. Uh, and in fact, that's, you know, back to the part of my own burnout. I think it was the lack of space in my life that led to the kind of burnout that I experienced back, uh, you know, a few decades back. And that's what that therapist was pointing at, you know, create some space. And, you know, as an activist, I still, I mean, you're right to kind of say there's anger in activism. Last year, I got arrested uh, protesting the caging of children at the border. I just think it's such an, you know, it's, it's, it's really an outrage, right? It's outrageous that we do this. And, um, and uh, I've been, you know, really angry about that situation, about kind of the direction the country's going. But I have to say it feels different to me now than it did in the 80s and 90s. Um, I, I'm not sure back in the 80s and 90s I knew how to, as we're saying, kind of honor that anger or see it as a, a gate or as an th important threshold or as a spotlight or something, you know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm able to see down deeper into it to reveal a set of deeper values and to even um, realize for myself what I cherish most, you know, what, what is this anger telling me about my values, about what I feel like I want to stand for in my life and in this particular world that we live in. And so it was interesting in this experience of protesting up there and then getting arrested. What we were doing was um, we, we blocked off the entrance and exit to an uh, immigration center. And uh, a lot of people were working inside. And I remember doing something kind of similar Back during the AIDS epidemic, we used to lay down in front of government buildings, you know, die-ins. And this time around, in blocking those places, I was really considering how much I valued the people that were working inside the ICE department, you know, as people inside immigration. That they weren't, I wasn't kind of constructing them to be like all bad, which is what I used to do that these are human beings 
with their own complex lives and and that they too are fundamentally dignified and worthy and complete human beings and that that feels like a really different kind of way of thinking about oneself as an activist than the earlier time when in everybody was the enemy you know and we were all victimized by them but instead something shifts in my perspective now you know i think i see the complexity of the the whole system that conspires uh to lead people to you know think certain ways do certain things hold certain kinds of jobs compromise you know we're all compromising our values in some way none of us get to live them perfectly you know and there's a lot of imperfection and just that little bit of softening of the anger uh it, it the anger then doesn't deplete me or the or you know i almost feel um, you were used the word already kind of empowered in a way to stand for what i stand for here but in a in in a way that is clear and firm but also soft roshi joan you know often talks about the strong back and the open front and that's more what it feels like to me now to be engaging in activism i think what's so confusing for a lot of people is that um they would equate that kind of let's say compassion for uh people who are working with an ice with weakness you know with giving in or um no longer taking a stand and it's it's really not so and it's very hard to explain i find in words um and it's it's easier to understand from an inner recognition of like oh right you know here it is it's it's being strong being clear uh taking action but not from such a a corrosive place perhaps of hatred yeah and i you know i think in my earlier days uh, there was something in me that i don't know was you know i i almost i i don't know how to put it exactly there's some kind of ill will in it you know like even though i was standing for something virtuous like ending the aids epidemic um there was something quite violent about it and uh you know i think thomas merton talks a little bit about that you know the the violence of of activism is a real hindrance it's a real thing to watch out for where all you're doing is reinforcing a violent system you know and there's something else as another aspect to it which is you know really being medicine to the system can we position ourselves in that mm-hmm. way um where we're kind of an antidote and some medicines are strong right some some medicines man you know you, or or medical procedures all that stuff they can be quite uncomfortable painful but they're administered and delivered with the real hope of healing and mm-hmm. uh, and and creating wellness and that just feels different to me in my body you know i can remember going to a a meeting 
there there were some efforts uh, in New York City for some time to bring together people who were working in uh, the fast food industry and who were leading the strikes for a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage and and for the right to unionize and. Uh, there was some effort to bring together these people with people who were meditating or practicing yoga. And there was one such meeting where uh, the facilitator, who was, was a meditator, uh, was trying to explicate the role of anger. And she said, I know there are people in this room who get very uncomfortable if they feel angry. And, you know, and so she asked the, the activists, like, how do you deal with it? Like, what's your thing? And, and they looked totally confused. And, and finally, one said, well, you know, we just want peace, hmm. you know, and our efforts are toward that end. It's there's no harmony in the society. There's no peace when people work that hard hmm. and are treated that badly. And, you know, it was such an interesting twist. Like, we just want peace. Yeah. Yeah. And. You know, I feel like as a society, we're confused, you know, like we're so conditioned to warfare. We really are. Mm -hmm. That even when we take on virtuous activity, right? This is the long history of religious war, for example, right? In, in humanity, but it still happens a lot of time. We, you know, we, we, we get clear about a set of values. We want to take a stand. And then we think we have to bludgeon everybody in order to get them to do it our way. You know, it's like this mm -hmm. confusion we have about this. And this is where I think the contemplative practice is, you know, in my opinion, just really helpful um, to sit in a kind of, you know, I'm a Zen guy. So for us, Zazen mm -hmm. is a kind of all-inclusive uh, openness, you know, and to take the time to remember that that's really what's here. What's really here is belonging. What's really here is connection. What's really here is that we're all finding our way through space and time, breath by breath, and that I'm connected to you, whether you're a person doing things that I agree with and like and think are helpful, or whether you're a person doing things that I don't like, like there's no denying that we belong together and that we're here together and that we're creating something together, you know, co-creating it, whether we want to admit it or not, that's kind of what's going on. And I think the silence of Zazen allows me to, not not only remember that intellectually, but also rest in it somehow. Do you find the lineage of Zen is infused with activism, or is that a more um, recent unfolding? Well, I don't know enough about the history of Zen to know. You know, if it, I, I think that Zen people over history, at least the stories we hear, there was a lot of nonconformity. And a lot of people who were tricksters and people who tried to, you know, just shake things up with the turn of a phrase or a funny action uh, or a slightly confusing but intriguing poem. Uh, this is all part of the tradition. And 
for for that reason, I I think it is. It's you know, it's about this. It's a practice of not getting too committed to what you think is going on here, um, because that's the mm-hmm. big trap. You know, getting overcommitted to it. And so I, the thing about Zen that I like, and maybe that I think has a overlap with activism, is there's a kind of pulling out the rug quality to it. You know, you pull something out from under your feet and say, wait, things might be different. Um, you know, um, you know, choose the issue. Um, but maybe our strong stance on this and our fixed way of thinking about it uh, isn't serving us very well. It's blinding us. So that's what I, I see in Zen. That's great. So you, you refer to yourself, your younger self, sometimes as having pathological altruism. Could you <laughs> explain the term and, and talk about your journey with that? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a term I got from Roshi Joan. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, she is brilliant in teaching about these things. And, um, there was a time when I think I was, you know, g- giving is a good thing, right? Let's just start with that, like basic premise, giving of yourself, giving of your time, your resources, your skills. This is all a good thing. But I also think it's really easy to give from the wrong place. Uh, at least it was for me. And, uh, you know, it's not that I was giving too much. I think this is sometimes what we get confused about. Like sometimes we say, well, you know, pathological altruism means don't, don't give so much, you know, you're giving too much. And I don't know that that doesn't resonate with me so much. It's about why are you giving? Like what's the deeper, uh, uh, impulse to give come, you know, where's that coming from? So I think for me, even though I was working the AIDS epidemic and had all these kids, it can sound like what burned me out was busyness, you know, but it wasn't just the busyness of it. And it wasn't the depletion of being generous. Like if you're really generous, you're not really depleted by it. But what I was doing, I've come to realize was I was giving out of a place of trying to fix something in myself. Like I really felt underneath it all that something was lacking in me. And that somehow I could make up for it by being a really good person. I identified it at one point as going back to being gay. Like I wanted to be accepted in the world and I wanted to be seen as the best little boy in the world. And so I became an overachiever. And that was a much better thing to be thought of than a fag or a homo or all the things that I was terrified of being called out on, right? So, in, so the, so the only place for that kind of energy to go is into burnout, in my opinion. And so I, I was doing lots of good things, a lot. I was getting lots of support and, uh, you know, um, admiration from people who would say, oh, you're doing such virtuous things with your life. You know, you're working in AIDS and you're adopting these kids, but but I came to realize it was coming from a place of lack inside me rather than coming from a place of wholeness. And I was trying to fill mm. some kind of bottomless pit of need in myself to be loved, you know? And um, 
that's been a hard one. That's been really hard because you get so much positive effort. You know, you're reaffirmed all the time for doing this good stuff. And the, the frenzy of doing good sometimes keeps us from, it has kept me at times from looking deeply into what's, what's going on here. What's motivating me? What am I trying to do? What story am I telling myself? Is it, is it true? You know? Um, and for me, it's another place where practice has helped me a lot. Yeah. I have a story in my book. There's a chapter, um, called something like sometimes just eat the banana, which is about an activist friend of mine who, uh, could not allow himself to enjoy anything, including mm -hmm. bananas, which he really wanted one of, um, because that can be an issue too, you know, right. as, as that kind of pathological altruism extends, um, then the denial of joy becomes a thing. Right. You know, it feels too selfish. It feels too wrong. And, right. and yet right. that might be the very thing that will help fill us. Yeah. I'm so Not glad you raised joy. Right. I'm so glad you raised that. You know, um, one of the practices for me has been a gratitude practice, learning how to start uh, from a place of gratitude, not Pollyanna utopian gratitude, like, you know, everything's going to be beautiful and perfect and there's no problem with the world and how beautiful it is, you know, not, not that, but to remember that in the midst of the suffering world, that I have this very life, I have this gift of a life and this breath and the whole world and everything in it and the sorrows and the joys. And I'm lucky to have this moment and this experience in life. And from that place of gratitude, I find that I can begin to honor my own pain um, and not feed it so much. And to also see and remember the beauty of the world that I'm in and the beauty of a human life. When I have students, when I formalize a, a student teacher relationship, which we do in Zen, we make, I make it, ask them for a number of commitments. And one of the commitment I always ask for of my students is that they have a regular practice of making beauty, of doing something creative, because it's really easy to forget that we have this capacity to actually enjoy our, our, our lives, our senses, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mind are great gifts and they allow us to appreciate the beauty of things. And I think that's a really important uh, perspective to maintain if you're going to spend a lot of your time in the hell realms, you know, if, if, if you're going to be focusing on the cracks of society and where things, where there's a lot of suffering remember that there's there's beauty in this world and even even in a suffering life there's beauty and part of that i think openness to joy uh, for many people comes from a sense of community as complicated as communities can be because relationships can be very complicated but uh, there's something about that affirmation that well, that person's kind of afraid too going out into the street or that person uh reminded me that um, you know, there is worth in this, in this, uh, homeless person or mentally ill person, yeah. not through giving me a lecture, but by telling me that story about their experience. So look what it meant for them. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, sometimes we get so busy like fixing the world, we forget to actually see it and appreciate it. You know. Um, yeah. I remember once sitting in a soup kitchen with somebody, and uh, and I just stopped and like sat and ate a meal with him and in the context of this meal you know he was really I I didn't really understand what he was saying or or talking about to me it wasn't making a whole bunch of sense you know I I couldn't quite track his his process or how he was thinking his train of thought and um and instead of like working really hard on it I remember just stopping and listening to him like almost as if I was listening to music, you know, like you don't, if it's the first time you're listening to a piece of music, you don't know where it's going. It kind of doesn't make sense, you know? And, uh, and I began to appreciate just his, his voice and his, the moments when he found humor in what he was saying and laughed. And then in the midst of all this, you're like, we must've built some kind of trusting relationship. Cause then he, pulled out a little notebook uh, that he had been working on that had doodles. And it was a book of scripture that he was writing, Mm. that he had read the Bible many times and now was writing his own gospels. And they were profound, you know, they were really profound. The depth of love that he longed for from the cosmos totally opened me, you know? And he was suddenly not somebody I couldn't understand anymore. He was a teacher, you know, he was, he, he, he was a beautiful person. He had a beautiful mind in a way. And it it was a different way of seeing and being. Um, And that, 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 that experience re- teaches me all the time. I've always like, since then, very conscious of, ah, this person mm-hmm. is, you know, is expressing himself. And that's beautiful. I think anyone in a life of service or an act of service comes to realize it's not a one-way street. You know, yeah. it's, it's really not. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I'm not even sure it's a two-way street. It's, oh no, you know, there's something also maybe hard to describe here, but, you know, Bernie Bernie Glassman used to talk about the oneness of life, right? It's unity. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a musician, you know, so sometimes I, I play music and there's something about being a musician where you're, you know, once you practice enough, like you're not really working super hard on the notes anymore, but you're just doing it. Mm-hmm. And right, you're you're not really separate from your instrument, and you're not really separate from the music, and all your senses are engaged, and you're just there doing it. You know, it's it's kind of nothing special. You're just doing it, the music. And um Sometimes I feel like if I can relax enough in these situations that there isn't a give and take going on so much, but there's just a kind of being with one another in that kind of unified time and space and moment, you know, we're just, we're just talking, we're just having a moment together. We're just 
uh, we're just kind of one in a way. And there isn't a lot of self-consciousness there. There's not a lot of like observer looking in on it. There's just the experience and the joy of this encounter. And I find those, um, that, that there's something, I don't know, you know, there's something just real and human and basic about that. It, it's, it's not extraordinary or it's, it's just everyday ordinary life. Um, without all the added stuff. And I find the simplicity of that, um, yeah, to be kind of a place of, I don't know if you call that practice, you know, that's, a, that's, 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 that's the mind or something um, mm-hmm. of, of practice. It's very beautiful. And, um, I'm wondering if to, I wish we could just hang out forever. So we'll have to arrange yeah. something. Um, but I'm wondering if to close our conversation, uh, you could lead us in a meditation practice. Oh, sure. Lovely invitation. So, um, yeah, maybe a little meditation practice is to build off of some of the things we talked about today. Um, It's always good in meditation to sit comfortably and feel your body somehow. Sometimes I get so in my head, you know, I forget that I have this body. And uh, it's nice just to quiet down for a minute, the frantic mind, to feel my feet on the floor. And to begin with, you know, Norman Fisher sometimes says, um, that there's something imaginative about our practice. And I I love that. And beginning this meditation with a sense of gratitude for your life without dropping into the difficulties of life or the problems of the world, to just settle into a breath and a sense of gratitude for the breath. gratefulness for the gift of having a human life. And just notice if anything holds you back from gratitude. And perhaps the breath can help you let it go a little bit, loosen its grip. Allow yourself to feel the breath in your body. Maybe with a little taste of that gratitude, you can allow yourself to honor your life as it is. What's ever there? Maybe it's grief or uncertainty in these times, or worry or anxiety or fear, or maybe joy and hope 
with a sense of something emerging, what's ever there, honor it, bow to it, acknowledge it as valid, as belonging right here in this moment. and honoring that in your own life. Can you imagine that these same senses and feelings, thoughts, emotions, arise in all other beings, and that you can honor it in them too. So often we rush past this moment of honoring because we feel we need to fix something or diagnose something. But in fact, we can honor where we are. Let it teach us, open us, allow us to see what we truly cherish close to the heart. might help us see what we truly love. Can we allow that insight into what we truly cherish to shape our vision of ourselves? That means shaping your vision of yourself and your vision of others. And even though we can't really see how things are going to turn out, can we still let this wholesome sense of ourself and others a wholesome sense of the future into our imagination. And allow this wholesomeness Maybe you realize it's always there anyway, but allow it to blossom a little bit in your life. And to allow yourself to believe that even this small amount of gratitude, wholesomeness, heals you. And in healing you, allows you to heal others. In meditation, I also like to remember that I'm not doing this alone. 
and to remember that we hold this together. We encourage each other. We help each other. And can we meet in a place where we encourage and inspire each other to take steps in creating a wholesome world? And in closing, we can return once again to gratitude. Grateful for our ability to imagine our own wholesomeness, the wholesomeness of others. And to offer whatever benefit comes, whatever goodness comes, to heal the world. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon, for having me. Thank you. It was so beautiful. And um, I love this uh, glimpse into your mind, you know, which is so wonderful, really, truly in your heart. Of course, it's been, it's been so lovely uh, spending this time with you. We should do it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's great. I learned so much. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much me really and yeah. uh for those listening to learn more about sensei joshin's work you can visit www.breadloafmountainzen.org thank you so much for listening this has been the meta hour podcast from the be here now network may you be safe may you be happy may you be healthy may you live with ease thank you Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. To receive a free meditation from the book, pre-order your copy today at realchangebook.com.